Heavenly Father, we need you in these moments. Left to ourselves, this will be pure and mere information. And we want heart transformation. Left to ourselves, we know that we are, yes, capable to understand, but not capable to respond with worship. And we are not able to live out these texts on our own, by our own strength, in our own power. We need you, Holy Spirit. And so please, would you help us? Would you help us to understand deeply what is being said by Jesus, what he's calling us to? And would you help us to then go and live out these great commands by your strength and power? We ask that you would move on our hearts in these moments. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you remember the last two weeks, we have been going verse by verse, starting in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. And tonight we land in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. We're going to chop this section of the Sermon on the Mount up into three parts. One, the law stands. Two, the law demands. And three, a righteousness that fulfills. The law stands, the law demands, and a righteousness that fulfills. Let's read Matthew 5, 17 to 20 together. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now remember, the crowds are gathered. Jesus has been performing miracles and preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and there's large crowds, and he has called disciples to himself. And specifically, he calls his disciples to himself, and he begins to teach, and he opens his mouth, blessed. Okay, so Jesus is specifically talking to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, though the crowds are, in a sense, overhearing what he's saying, and possibly becoming disciples. But this Sermon on the Mount is given to disciples, which I hope and pray every one of you in this room is a disciple of Jesus, as an extension of those first disciples, as they obeyed the Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples. So I want you to read this and receive this, not as to a first century crowd on a mountain, but rather as disciples of those first disciples who were obedient to make disciples, who made disciples, and 2,000 years later, here we are. So let's read what Jesus has to say to us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at the law stands. Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is not setting himself up against Moses. 
As you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He wrote Psalm 90. And by saying Moses and the prophets, Jesus was saying what would have been common to his hearers, the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, you remember when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what? On these two commandments depend all the what? Law and the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament could be summed up by saying the law and the prophets. And so Jesus is saying, I didn't come in opposition to Moses and the prophets and the writers of the Psalms. Rather, I came to fulfill or fill full what they wrote, to correctly interpret and expand what they have said. And so Jesus is not setting himself up as opposed to Moses, though he himself is a greater Moses, no doubt. He is the capital P prophet. Okay. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish. That word abolish means to make void or to be broke down. So we as Christian disciples of Jesus are not, big word, antinomians, anti-nomis, nomis, Greek for law. We're not anti-law as Christians, even though we are a gospel-centered people. Why? Why? Why, if we're a gospel-centered people, it's all about grace, why would we not be anti-law? Because isn't law opposed to grace? Well, no, not necessarily. It's dangerous and wrong to set gospel up against law because they fit together. So Jesus says, I, I didn't come to set it aside or abolish it, to break it down or to make void. No, I came rather to fulfill it. And we'll talk more about what fulfilling it means in a moment. Uh, but I do want to talk about this. There are lots of confusion, especially among new believers, and rightfully so, that what parts of the law are we responsible for? Right? So I've told this story, but it's such a good story, I'll tell it again. My buddy, a brand new believer, uh, was reading through the Old Testament just hungry to learn, hungry to grow, hungry to know. And he came across some of the dietary laws. And he read, no pork. And guess what he did? In obedience, he went right to his fridge and trashed all the ham. That's fantastic. Right? Swift obedience. Like, all right, I guess no more ham, no more bacon. And, and he trashed it. And then later, as he grew, he realized, okay, I can enjoy some bacon. I can enjoy some shrimp wrapped in bacon and greasy, greasily fried and enjoyed with cocktail sauce. But swift obedience, I think, was a good mark because that should mark disciples. And even with his wrong understanding of certain aspects of the Old Testament, his obedience, I think, is commendable. Amen? Amen. Yeah. It's commendable. But what about, so what about the dietary laws? What about the ceremonial laws? What about the calendar laws? What about the civil laws that govern Jerusalem? I mean, what about that? Well, we know from the New Testament in Galatians and in Colossians, clearly and in the Gospels, that Jesus is the fulfillment of these commands. 
Now, I want you to think about something very quickly. A lot of those commands could only work in Jerusalem. Because often the festivals and the, and the feasts, you had to travel to Jerusalem in order to observe them. In order to sacrifice, you had to be at the temple in Jerusalem. The civil laws govern Jerusalem when it was a theocracy. And even at this time with Jesus, the Romans have now taken, in a sense, authority, and they're not even allowed to exercise capital punishment because Rome has their boot on the necks of even the lawyers and the chief priests and the councils of authority. So quickly, a place to see this without going much further is Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Just listen to it. Paul talking to the church at Colossae, he says this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay, so that is a way of saying all those Old Testament calendar, dietary, civil calendar laws. Don't let anyone judge you for doing or not doing these. Why? Well, verse 17 tells us clearly why. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, now let's think about shadows for just a moment. When something is solid and an object and light is cast on it, it casts a shadow. Now, the shadow that's cast is these civil laws, dietary laws, ceremonial laws, cleanliness laws. But what is the substance that the light is hitting to cast the shadow is Jesus himself. So Jesus is the solidness, the fulfillment, that when light hits him, the shadow that's cast is a Sabbath. But listen, Jesus is our rest. We rest in him from our work. We can't work to earn God's favor. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament cleanliness laws. The cleanliness laws showed that we could not keep ourselves clean. But by Jesus, we're cleansed. Not only was he the one who was clean, but then he, when we come to him, he cleanses us. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We're clean in Christ, not because we've performed an Old Testament regulation. You see, all of these Old Testament regulations and rules all pointed to Jesus as the substance. And so they're fulfilled in Christ. But we have another portion of the law that is still not only binding on Christians, but good. It's called the moral law of God. And Jesus, next week we'll see in verses 21 and on, he, he not only shows that Moses was right in what he wrote, but he expands it and interprets it correctly. So it's not just that we don't murder, but listen, when we get angry, the seed of murder is there and we are potentially able to kill if that seed is allowed to grow. We may not physically commit adultery, but that is in your heart and by you lusting, that's the seed. And if allowed in the right circumstance, you will be committing adultery and so on and so forth. Jesus 
correctly interprets the law. Now, we could go on and on about, right? So the civil laws point to loving your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus was the only one who truly loved his neighbor. And, and on and on we could go. Jesus is the fulfillment of those civil, ceremonial, sacrificial, dietary laws. Now, a friend texted me one day. He was reading his Bible, and he had a question. And his question stemmed from Galatians 5.18. Maybe it's familiar to you. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And so this friend texted me, and he says, hey, I was reading Galatians 5.18. Does this mean there's no laws for the Christians anymore? Like, are we lawless now? That just sounds weird, lawless Christians, right? No. And I said to him, no, that's not what that means. What, what that simply means is when you're under the power and control of the Holy Spirit and you're walking by the Spirit's power and not by the strength of your own self, you'll never break one of the laws. Because the Holy Spirit would never, never, never push you, compel you, or excite you to go against what God has revealed of his revealed will. Now, the moral law, we could say it this way. It's his revealed will. So Christians are always asking, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What's God's will? And we fret and we wonder and we pause. Sorry for that massive P there. We pause. Okay? And, and, and we are sometimes frozen. No Elsa and Anna. We're sometimes frozen. Okay? And here's the deal. God has shown us clearly what his will is. It's all through the scriptures. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. It's right there in the pages. And if you would just open it up and read. Remember Augustine, take up and read, take up and read. Maybe you hear that voice tonight. Take up and read, take up and read. See what his will, his will is. It's clearly revealed. Verse 18 for truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus here not only affirms the inerrancy of the Old Testament, so Jesus says, listen, not, not even a, a jot or a tittle is how one translation uh, translates it. It means in Greek, the smallest little dash, and in Hebrew, the littlest part of a letter. It's not one small part will go unfulfilled. It's all relevant. It's all for us. None of it can get put away. It's either fulfilled in Jesus or it's on you. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. So Jesus affirms the 39 books of the Old Testament as inspired, inerrant, and for us. How many of you are way more prone to go New Testament than Old Testament? Be honest, come on. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Because we're like, man, that's, that's New Covenant. That's... But listen, the Old Testament is God's word. And there is much there for your good. And Jesus is clearly all through it. You diligently search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. It's the Old Testament. Yet these are the scriptures, the very scriptures that speak about me. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And if we have eyes to see, 
we will see him there. And that's part of what growing is. It's seeing Jesus all through the Old Testament. Jesus validates the authority of the law and that none of God's demands will go unaccomplished. So do you see that? None of it's going to pass away, but it will all be accomplished. There's going to be an accomplishment of the entire law. Number two, the law demands, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We often look at the law as negative. So what do you mean by the law? You keep saying law. I mean the moral law of God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we sum up the law, that's it. We could say that the Ten Commandments... And I would argue that the Sabbath is fulfilled. I think that the, the fourth commandment was a part of that um, ceremonial, dietary. I think the Sabbath is included in that. Don't let anyone judge you according to a Sabbath of Colossians 2. Uh, but other than that, the, the, the Ten Commandments fulfilled Sabbath. Okay, we could talk about that after if you have questions. I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, is on us for our good. It's how God designed the world to work. And it's how we as Christians, if we truly fulfilled them, these laws, these moral laws, summed up in loving God and neighbor, it would be a beautiful community if we could live these out. Like, we would not be jealous ever. We would not, if, if one of my friends had something good happen to them, I wouldn't immediately think, how come nothing good ever happens to me? And I covet his good circumstance, situation, thing. We'd never be jealous of one another. We'd never envy one another. We would never lie to one another. It would be a beautiful community of honesty and goodness and purity. Okay, so why do we think of the law as negative? Because we know that when we look at it and look at it closely, we know how much of an epic failure we are. That's why. And so we think of the law as negative, and so we don't even want to go there. However, have you ever read in Psalm 19, 7 to 11, how the psalmist talks about the law? Like, listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect or blameless, reviving the soul. How many of you want to be revived? Like we, we want vibed. And if you don't feel vibed tonight... The law of the Lord can revive you, revive your soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, I, maybe there's a few simple among us. I want to be wise. Don't you want to be wise? Like, the wise can increase in wisdom. Even if you find yourself wise tonight, man, increase in wisdom. Get some more gray. Because there's wisdom there. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How many of you look at the law and, and think rejoicing, joy, re-joy, rejoicing? 
You're, you're looking at it and you're getting joyed again. Rejoice. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. How many of us want to be able to see more clearly and see more of God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want to see more of God. I feel like I'm a, I'm a blind bat, and I can't see anything. Like I'm, I'm like that guy that Jesus half healed. I see men like trees walking. I'm like, please open my eyes. I pray that all the time, that simple prayer. God, please open my eyes. So that's a prayer to pray often because I'm blind. I know I am. I know I, there's so much more to see. And if we're dealing with an infinite God, we can never exhaust him. There's always more to see. Enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. Clean, not dirty. Clean. Enduring forever. The rules or just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We're attracted to the true. In fact, our media is obsessed with truth. WikiLeaks is obsessed with truth. And they're not even Christians. But we know we have the true. Not just truth in general, but truth as in a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. Or no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to this, verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Gold. Now, gold is one of those precious metals that we wish all, we could all get our hands on, whether in jewelry or in rims, some of us maybe. Large, run DMC and old NWA chains. Man, if I could just get some gold, then my life would really pick up. If you went to treasure hunt and pawned in the gold, then your life could really start. But listen, more to be desired are they than gold. Are you kidding me? I mean, what kind of sight does this psalmist have that we do not have? If he looks at a pile of gold and calculates the value and then looks at the law and says, more desirable, I'll push that gold away. Like there's something going on there that we just don't know about. Can we admit that? We don't see the law like that. Give me the gold. Sweeter also than honey. Now, in this day when this was written, you know, sugar did not abound. And, you know, you couldn't go to Aldi and buy wildflower and clover honey. Or go to Whole Foods and buy the, the hive itself loaded with honey. And the only way that you got to sweeten your food was with honey. And so he's saying the sweetest thing possible in the day that this was written, that is how I see the law. It's sweet to me. I taste it and it's sweet to me. Is the law sweet to you or is it condemning and crushing to you? You see, this psalmist in Psalm 19 is seeing something different here than we see and I want us to be where he is. Don't you want to be there? Because listen, on your phone is the law that he is speaking of. In your Bible, and your multiple Bibles, is exactly what he's speaking of. So it's available. It's, it's there for your taking. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. 
and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them great reward. How many of us would like great reward as defined by God? Yeah, I'll take some great reward. How do I get that? Keeping them. What? And I thought we were gospel people. I thought we threw the law away a long time ago. Well, not according to the Bible. Sweeter than honey, more desirable than gold. Great reward. Okay, so, so what's going on here? Well, a righteousness that fulfills, and we're done. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless, before we, before we, before we move on. Jesus here is teaching that we, like the scribes and Pharisees, those who would have been the doctors of that day, who would have relaxed the law, made it easier to keep. Like, it's okay to lust in your mind, just don't physically do it. Well, that's easier. Easier. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can't relax that law. That goes all the way into the heart and into the motives and into the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hmm. So, so Jesus says, no, 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 we're, we're not going to relax this as you're used to. And he's saying that these who relax will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Some scholars see the least there in the kingdom of heaven as actually not even in the kingdom of heaven. Not just that you're kind of small and insignificant least, but rather not even a part. And those who teach them, as we will be looking at in just a moment here, and do them, will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Now keep in mind, remember, Jesus has been proclaiming prior to this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is now. Like the kingdom is here. Why? Because the king is here. The king has come and he has shown his authority over nature, over evil, over disease and sickness. And remember, just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, all the sick were brought to him. All the possessed were brought to him. And they were all healed. Now the king has authority over moral evil in the lives of even his disciples. And he's saying we cannot relax the law so that it's doable, quote unquote. So that we can fulfill it in our own strength, in our own efforts, self-fulfillment. Rather, Verse 20, and a righteousness that fulfills. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for some of us, we're like, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, exceeds, who are the scribes, who are the Pharisees? What does it mean to exceed their righteousness? Well, it means a couple things. So first, the scribes and the Pharisees were the meticulous not only doctors of the law and studying it and, and tearing it apart and applying it, but then adding to it. So, for example, if, imagine if the, if the law, the moral law of God is a fence. These men would add a fence outside of the fence. 
So don't do this because you might break the law. And then they would throw up barbed wire on it. And then they would electrify the fence. And to the point where Jesus says, you heap heavy burdens and you're not even willing to lift a finger yourself. So these men were meticulous, kind of outwardly keepers of the law, yet inwardly they were not. And so we know this because Jesus exposes them very clearly to us. So let's, let's look at what Jesus has to say about these men that in order for us to be called great in the kingdom of heaven and to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless we exceed their righteousness. What were these men like? Well, Matthew 23, 1-4 tells us. This text is just on the heels of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's right on the heels of him cleansing the temple. It's right on the heels of his authority being questioned by these very men, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're unable to answer Jesus' questions, and so now he turns to the crowd. So I want you to imagine this. A crowd has gathered. There's a fight because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes are questioning Jesus. And, right? So in high school or junior high, when someone yelled, fight, what did you do? Everyone gathered. Now everyone gets out their phone. Make some YouTube hits here. So there's a crowd gathered. And Jesus, just after tussling with these scribes and Pharisees, he turns to the crowd and begins to publicly denounce them, I believe, with them right in his presence. Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now, archaeologists have found a seat in ancient synagogues where it is believed that these men would sit and they would teach from the law. Okay, so if it means that, okay, there's Moses' seat. If it doesn't mean that, it simply means when they teach from the first five books of the Bible. When they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now that's frightening. Because oftentimes we find ourselves there too. We, we can't help it because we're sinful. Like we have mixed motives. We can't even figure ourselves out sometimes. We're so tangled up. We try to untie a knot and all of a sudden we make a bigger knot. But these men were all about the praise of other men. They did not care for the praise of God, for his approval, for what God thought. Rather, they were content to have smaller praise, the praise of men. Much smaller praise. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And then jumping down to Matthew 23, 23 to 28, Jesus pronounces woes. Now, the woes in the New Testament were like the Old Testament prophets cursing. Isaiah curses himself when he sees Jesus on his throne in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And so Jesus now pronounces curses on these very men, the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Why? Hypocrites. Now keep in mind, these men are probably standing right there. And he's talking to the crowds and his disciples about these very men. And maybe he turns to them. 
and says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Maybe he's looking them dead in the eye. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So again, these men were meticulous in their outward keeping. What's the weightier issues? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You see, the law is all pointed to a deeper reality. What's the deeper reality? If the law was actually fulfilled, there would be legitimate faithfulness. There would be legitimate mercy. There would be legitimate justice. That's what we want. We want justice. We want mercy, and we want faithfulness. Don't you want that? Here's how you want that. You want that when someone is aiming that at you. Isn't that right? Like, so, so here's, here's an example. If someone wrongs you, let's say they steal from you. You want justice. My car's gone. I, I just left it running to heat it up, and now it's gone. It happened to some of our people recently. What do you want? Justice. That's aimed at you. But what about when you have committed some injustice against someone else? What do you want? Mercy. And don't we all want faithfulness? Don't, I mean, aren't we just outraged even in movies when people are unfaithful? Like, how could you be so unfaithful? Like, I remember getting mad when I watched uh, Cast Away with Tom Hanks. Remember that at the end? His, his then-girlfriend is now married, and then they kiss, and I'm like, dude. My buddy's like, he thought he was dead. I'm like, no, dude. Faithfulness. It's messed up. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, that angered me inside. It was just a movie, man. It's Tom Hanks. Relax. Throwing popcorn at the screen. Kiss her. But see, we want these things. And, that, and, and isn't it beautiful that Jesus says, these are the way to your matters. It's not about your garden tithing. Like, you do that to impress others. You get around with your guys drinking coffee while I tithe my cumin. It weighed. and weighed it up on my triple beam. Aren't you impressed? Faithfulness, justice, mercy, these you ought to have done. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you should have tithed your garden, right? Because that is a requirement in Old Testament Israel. So you should have done that, but without neglecting the others. So you're so concerned about the outward things that others could be impressed by, yet you neglect showing mercy to people, which shows you have not been shown mercy. Because only those who have been shown massive mercy are able to show mercy. And so listen, if you're an unmerciful person in here, you need to realize, if you're a Christian, how much you've not been given what you deserve. And you will become a more merciful person. When you realize how merciful God's been to you, you owe an infinite debt to him, and he says, I forgive you, I'll pay the debt. And then you go and hold other people up unmercifully, it just shows you don't know how much mercy you have received, or maybe you haven't received it at all, like these men. I don't need mercy. I'm righteous. Look at what I do. I tithe my garden. I need mercy. 
Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That means, um, you know, the, the old school in this day was the, the masks. Like the, the theaters have the, the two masks and the ribbons. Like that's usually a, a, an old school. There's a playhouse. You see the two masks. Well, they would put on the mask and the one actor would play different roles. Hypocrite. You're, you're, you're two people, but you're the same person. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plates, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And so you look real good on the outside, man. You are polished. You are looking clean. But inside, Jesus sees right through these men, you're greedy and you're only out for self. You're out to get all you can. And then as some have said, sit on the can. You're out for you. Self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. And I can, I can just see the Pharisee looking right in his eye, Jesus staring him down. And you can see the, the Pharisee like bundling his fists up, ready to punch God incarnate. You hypocrite. Pharisee. You blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. You see, Jesus is far more concerned about who you are and who I am on the inside. Because from the heart flows either righteousness or sin. It's not about what goes on on the outside. The outside is a symptom of a greater reality, the inside heart. And so when you speak and words come out, Jesus says, well, they're just telling on what's going on in your heart. When your actions happen, well, that started inside. So he says, focus on the inside, and then the outside will be clean. But it's an inward issue with God. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite. You are like hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Like freshly painted tombstones. <laughs> But within, inside, are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now, to the Jews, you remember the cleanliness laws? You can't touch a dead body or you're defiled. You're unclean. Graves, you can't even step across a grave, an unmarked grave. You're, you're defiled. So he's saying, you, you feel like you're clean on the outside, yet inside you are dead. You are unclean on the inside, is what he's saying. So... You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and, listen to this, lawlessness. Hmm. Lawlessness. Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the lawlessness of the scribes and Pharisees. What's he saying? He says, you better get it right on the inside. Or even if your outside looks good, lawless. Hmm. And now we have a problem, don't we? <laughs> because when we look inward, what do we see? We see a mess. And praise God that he doesn't leave us in our mess. Romans 10, 1-4 Paul, um, talking about 
Jews and his fellow Hebrews. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, these fellow Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Like they don't get it. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So even if you were fantastic at keeping the law outwardly, you would be just like the men that Paul just wrote about in Romans 10, 1 to 4. You would be doing this. You would be ignorant of the righteousness of God. Why? Because you would be seeking to establish your own righteousness. So your plan, if you're this person, would be to show up to God on Judgment Day and present your resume. Present your goodness. Present your awesomeness. And you're ignorant, not in the rude sense, but in the you just don't have the knowledge of what is actually demanded. So listen, if you think that you can fulfill the law, and you are in your mind right now, yeah, I'm killing it. What you've done is you've taken the bar, which is unjumpable, and you've made it so low that you can just step right over it. You've not heightened the law, you've lessened the law. You've relaxed the law, as Jesus says here. God's standard is absolute perfection, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Like no ill motives, even once. It must be inward, not exterior. Psalm 119.20, the psalmist says, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules or decrees at all times. What? Let me read that again, because that just goes so countercultural to our 2016 American Christianity. My soul is consumed with longing. That's a C.S. Lewis word. You, just, you have this desire that is unfulfilled, but out there in the future, and you want it. What, what's it for? The psalmist says, for your rules, for your decrees, at all times. What? Well, in the next verse, I'm sorry, if we jump down to 33 of Psalm 119, he says this, teach me, O Lord, teach me, meaning I don't know, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, not just your statutes, but the way of your statutes, and I will keep them or it to the end. Give me understanding, meaning I don't have understanding. Give it to me, please. That, so that, I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. How can we be here where this psalmist is? Well, maybe some of you know the quote that's often attributed to John Bunyan. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, all wrapped up in the gospel and even in the prophets 
is this good news that not only will there be an outward ability, but an inward newness. Remember to which the law and the... I told you it was coming. I told you. We were waiting for it. A newness of heart that creates an outward ability. So Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah was a prophet, as you know, and in 31, he is promising a new day coming. He is promising a new covenant, which means promise, not like the old covenant that was made at Sinai. He says in 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. So God is saying this, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. You ready? So the new promise is this. The old covenant was the law, Sinai, the giving of the 600 plus commandments. This is the new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them. So Old Covenant, it was written on stone. It was written on parchment, and you could read it. It was outward, but no inward power, no inward ability. Now, the law is going to be written inside of you. Can you read that again? I will... Put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. We're living in this promise right now, brothers and sisters. So you have the law inside of you. You have an inward reality that enables you to keep the moral law of God. Who is it? It's not a it, it's a he. The he is the Holy Spirit, but you also have an it. The it is a new heart. Ezekiel speaks of this same new covenant. He says, I'll take out their heart of stone, impenetrable, hard, and I'll give them a heart of flesh. I will cause them to walk in my ways. Hmm. So we get this new heart that has the law written on us or in us, and then we have This causing us to walk in his ways. What's that? Well, that's the he. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself moving through each Christian, enabling them to not covet and to love their neighbor. Enabling them to not bear false testimony or not lie to one another and rather speak the truth to one another. Enabling them to love God when before they feared him. Well, how can this be? Well, verse 17 again, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law 
or the prophets, the entire Old Testament. Rather, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, even if we took the Ten Commandments and put that on you and said, just, just do these and you'll be okay, that would be a weight so crushing that we could not get up. We're down for the count. Jesus takes that crushingness upon himself. You see, the law can be fulfilled in at least two ways. One, you can actually live it out, which Jesus did. God become man, lived 100% righteous in the motives. Every thought was pure and clean, never a selfish moment. Can you imagine that? Never an impure thought towards the opposite sex, ever. Only looking out for the other's good all the time. The inward realities of the law. So that's how the law could be fulfilled, but then it could be fulfilled by you paying the penalty. If the law demands justice, justice could be served by you paying the penalty, whatever the penalty is. Well, the problem with this penalty is it's payable only by eternity for us. We've sinned against an infinite God and he demands an infinite punishment. Yet Jesus says, I'll, I'll take it. I'll fulfill the law in both senses. I'll live it perfectly in their place and I'll fully take the justice that they're breaking it demands. Double fulfillment. And, and, and the beauty is now, he says, now I give you my righteousness as a gift. So that's the righteousness of God that Romans 10 was talking about. Ignorant of the righteousness of God. It's a fulfillment that only God himself could fulfill. And he did what needed to be done. And now all we have to do is come to him and acknowledge our utter failure. That shouldn't be so hard to do. Just look at yourself. Right? Just take a look inside for a moment and realize how desperately in need of mercy you are. And yet God, full of mercy, says, I will not give you what your sins deserve. I'll give Jesus what your sins deserve. And Jesus willingly, out of love, says, I'll take what their sins deserve. Because he loved us fully, wishing our good, wishing others good that we have not even witnessed to yet. I believe there's more people in this city who are yet to be covered by this righteousness, who you're going to talk to, who I'm going to talk to, who God wants to save and then take out their heart of stone. As I pray, he's taken out your heart of stone. Give them a heart of flesh as, he, as I pray, he's given you a heart of flesh and then fill them with his very presence, the Holy Spirit. The weight of the law crushes and condemns us, but Jesus takes that crushing, condemning weight off of us and puts it on himself. And now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
we can say with the psalmist, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. Who do, we, who do we pray that kind of prayer to? God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can say, give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Now we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because we have a new heart. We have God himself pushing us and compelling us towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. And more so every day. Aren't you glad of that? That the promise is he's going to keep working on you and he's going to keep working on me he's not going to give up he's faithful to complete what he started so we have a lot to be thankful for jesus fulfills the law lives it by fulfilling it and then fulfills it by paying its penalty for being broken so we're going to celebrate that right now together we're going to remember jesus body broken for us we're going to remember his blood shed for us that's the penalty for the breaking of the law. And maybe you're not a Christian tonight, but you're saying, I want that. I want that. I, I want to ask the God of the universe, the righteous judge, to judge Jesus in my place. Can Jesus pay my fine? Can Jesus pay my penalty that's the demand of justice? And, and the answer is yes. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so maybe tonight for the first time as a Christian, this could be a reality for you, celebrating Jesus' body broken for your sins, Jesus' bloodshed for your sins, and now you're righteous in Christ. 100% the righteousness of God is on you. And the Father can look at you as he looks at the Son and says, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done. Let's celebrate Jesus together.